Welcome to Did They Ask the Fans, a new episode of the Fan Engagement Pod where sports marketing guru Tim Crow and me, Kevin Rye from Think Fan Engagement, talk about why fans don't get listened to in football and why that has to change. Guest this edition is Ronan Evan from Football Supporters Europe, someone I've known for a long time, talking about the clown car of Super League and the lack of business acumen shown by all the clubs involved and why sponsors could now be at the forefront of pushing for change. Don't forget the Fan Engagement Index for 2019-2020 is now out. Go to fanengagement.net to find out how your club did. Enjoy the episode, it's a good one. The stuff is the future. like you to kick it off because you're coming from a different you you right. come from a, 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 a perspective that's very close to and sympathetic but you're you you've spent a long time yeah in an industry in marketing sports marketing which affords you a look a a, 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 a view which i don't have in the, and, and and i doubt ronan has because yeah. we come from a different part of, uh, of football Go on. Uh, yeah well it's it's um uh it's, it's the sports business story of the year, uh, unquestionably, um, uh, because, you know, it, it's, it surfaced something in football, and football is the biggest sport on the planet, um, unless you happen to be American, which is interesting <laughs> in the context. Um, but uh, the, um, the, it's also electrified... Um, the sort of sports marketing, sports business area, because there's so many people with with a stake in that particular area. You know, um, the you know from from my side, from the sort of sports marketing side, uh, it's particularly interesting in that everybody knew that the Super League, a breakaway has been in the background for years, actually. I mean, since the very first mention of it. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a surprise that, guess what, you know, it's been there in the background again as the new UEFA cycle has been coming up because it was always something that the the big teams were going to use. What what has astonished everybody is that they actually did it. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think anybody... Um, you know, anybody who says they weren't surprised by the fact that this happened um, so publicly, so quickly, rather than staying in the background, um, I, I, I would doubt. Um, so it really has been quite astonishing and actually um, has demonstrated something that you know people have often, over the course of this last sort of 400 days said, you know, wonder what, you know, will people still care about sport as much as they did? But actually, what, what this has shown is people still care about football. In fact, they care about it so much that it's become the story across Europe and has penetrated the world. And people have gone out and marched and had their say. And, um, uh, it's been extraordinary, you know, and, and when we look back on this year, it will, you know, I mean, who knows what else is going to happen, but, you know, it's hard to think of anything that's going to top this. 
Um, and I'm hoping that something really good comes out of it because that's the big question, right? Is what, what next? Um, and I'm hoping that something really good comes out of it. Um, Ronan will will have his view and you will have your view, Kev, on what that, what that might be. Um, and I guess, my, you know, the other perspective for me is that I, I sort of don't have any skin in this game because I support a non-league football club. I've supported Halifax Town. They were in Tier 5 of the English League since I was nine years old. So um, uh, it's sort of quite, in a way, it's quite entertaining for me personally to watch, although I would like to see, a, you know, what the solution is, a benefit, a mighty shame in some way. Um, but professionally, it's also been fascinating as well. And it's also um, involved me in a lot of very interesting discussions with sponsors of the Big Six who were very, very, I mean, well, I won't say they were very happy. There was some real anger out there on Monday last week um, and some exasperation. So that's been, you know, quite interesting as well. So, Ronan, um, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to ask you the question, how do you feel about it? Because I know that. Um, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that you're not going to be on the fence on this issue. Um, how's, it, how's it been? I mean, surely the biggest thing is, I think Tim's pointed out, and this, this, this is about, you know, um, the title of the podcast is, did they ask the fans? You know, is this, this what we're talking about here is, is, is um, instances, issues, um, there might be, you know, it might be sponsor relationships, decisions made in football. Um, did, did they actually ask the fans about this? Um, did you have any idea um, that anything like this was in the in the offing? Because I know that you were involved in the early the, the meetings only a few weeks before at UEFA with the ECA and all that kind of stuff, obviously via Zoom. Just tell us a little bit about where you were, you know the build-up to it and, 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 and your surprise, assuming that you were surprised uh, at, the, at the, the way this was done? No, I, I was surprised, I'm not going to lie. And I, I think anyone saying that they saw all of this coming and it, this, is, this was all obvious from, from the beginning uh, is lying or is re rewriting history because yes, it was always a possibility, but it was never a reality before, before Sunday, uh, 10 days ago. Um, I think that they'll build up. Obviously, the idea has been in, that's been existing since the mid '60s. I think at least that's how far we could trace it back. The idea of the European Super League. Uh, it's been used as a threat since the early 2000s, the birth of the G14. I think that's when they started to to to, to build the actual concept of the to play with numbers uh, behind it. And I think we got to this point, it, it, was, it was a two years process. When two years ago, there was the first attempt from UEFA to reform its competitions. And the idea at that time was to turn the, the Champions League into what would have been effectively a close shop, a very close shop. Uh, it didn't happen. It wasn't in the interest of UEFA leadership at that moment. And they sort of put things on hold. And then what we've seen for, for yeah, for, her, for a year, year and a half was a process in which Actually, only the big clubs were really were really involved into the into the into the decision making process. We've been consulted; other stakeholders have been consulted. But in the end, we could only we could only draw some red lines and tell UEFA this is a terrible idea, and it didn't go much further than that. It's better than in the past. That was the first time we were involved at that stage of the uh, 
of the buildup of the reform, but that, that was still far from, from being uh, ideal. I think the first warning sign, we knew there were, there were a lot of media reports and we heard from various people within the game that, um, that there was some serious work done in the background by, by Juve, by, by Real Madrid, but it's, it's been there for so long that it was hard to take it too serious. And then about six weeks ago, that's when we started to see people in, in the world of, in fo of football being seriously concerned about, about the breakaway. That's when we published the statement with uh, 116 groups from all over Europe opposing the, the idea. And uh, that's when it became sort of a reality for us. Then the real first warning sign was when the UEFA uh, reform wasn't voted a bit more than a month ago by the club commissions committee. So that was the sign that there were some, some, some important movements in the background. And then, yeah, the UEFA voted the reform. I mean, the club competitions committee voted the reform on Friday, uh, almost two weeks ago. And less than two hours later, we were hearing the first uh, noises coming from Madrid that uh, Real wasn't happy with the reform, the very reform that was built from A to Z to please the interest of the big clubs. So that's when we thought we probably have a problem on our hands. I think it was also decisive, given that when Real and Juve have been playing, working on this for a long time, and, and, and Bayern and a few other clubs, but... I think what made it a possibility and then eventually made it happen is that they got all those American owners of clubs in Italy and in, in, in England behind the project. And although, of course, Agnelli and Perez are the big villain of this, of this project and it should be held accountable, this would have never happened without the involvement of, uh, of the owners of Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester United, AC Milan. I mean, Gazidis is definitely one of them or was until last week, one of the most influential figure in European, in European football, at least in the football industry. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's a success, this addition of, of factors that make it, make it become a reality. Tell me, what's fascinating in all of this, I don't want to fast forward now to the debate that we're having in England, which is, you know, it's prompted a huge amount of an upsurge. I mean, it's not quite sure if it's the right phrase, but an upsurge of soul searching. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's now, it's also coincided with yet another review of the game. Uh, my account about, this is probably about a dozen, um, 10 to a dozen since the Football Task Force reported in the late 90s and created Supporters Direct. And then obviously out of that came SD Europe, your, your partner organisation Europe. Um, but um, people are grasping for, for ideas. They're trying to, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping obviously the Fan Engagement Index helps to, promote helps to support that a bit but some people are rushing towards fan ownership the fan control and the 50 plus one the golden idea that the thing that's going to solve all the problems um and i hate to keep actually i don't hate to keep keep reminding people i relish reminding people <laughs> who the biggest movers in all of this were real madrid and barcelona and i know that they are conglomerates compared to the corner shops um of fan ownership that we're talking about over in england um, that we mainly have, but these are fan-owned football clubs. Mm -hmm. This is what happens not when you have fan ownership, or not when this is what happens rather when when a particular culture, and let's call it a culture of just simply a culture of not listening, um, takes hold. And it just seems to me that if you compare, say, Real Madrid and Barcelona with what 
people are saying about Arsenal and Spurs and Man United or even Juve, but I'm talking about the English experience. The issue is the culture here, that they're not listening because in the, the privately owned clubs, they're not listening because they're not required to particularly by the law and by the structure of the company. And we always talk about that. And that's true in, from my experience, working all over Europe as well. And I'm sure you will see a lot of that. But, mm-hmm. but in these clubs, Real Madrid and more than a club Barcelona, and I, you know, I am sticking the boot in, but they have asked for this and they deserve to be, you know, roundly, um, 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 you know, carpeted for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are fan-owned clubs. So this is a cultural problem, isn't it, in football? This isn't to do with who owns your club because the German fan-owned clubs managed to be sensible enough to realise what, what was a, an idea that stank and was wrong. Maybe it's because they thought they wouldn't get away with it, but I doubt it very much. But that isn't just because it's fan ownership, is it, Ronan? This is a culture in football. You talked about UEFA having a particular interest in X, Y, Z reform and not doing something because it wasn't in their interests. I don't think that includes particularly the interests of organized, certainly organised fans, mm-hmm. um, does it? Let's be honest. There's, there's surely at least as much of a cultural aspect to it as, a, as an organization, as a government's aspect to it. Um, I don't, I can't imagine a German fan that would, that would, that would argue that the 50 plus one rule is, is perfect, but at least it's the, it's the least bad governance or ownership model that we know. Uh, the essential problem with, with Real Madrid or Barcelona is, is, is one of, of governance. It's a, they, those clubs are, um, Oh, the, sorry. Yeah, the biggest problem with those clubs is probably the populism that is connected to the election of their president. This is leading to an arm race where they have to promise more expenses, more players, more results every every time there's an election. And the fact that the power is concentrated in uh, in the hands of a strong man like Perez in uh, in Real Madrid that prevents any form of of active participation on democracy. So yes, those are, those are fan-owned clubs, so those are association clubs, but uh, they, 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 the only moment of democracy is the election of the chairman, and then, and then they, have a, they have a free reign for four years or, or, or whatever. So that's how I think those clubs have lost the sense of priorities. And by chasing new markets, whether they are in Southeast Asia or in Northern America, they have made the choice to antagonize their most faithful clients at home. It is a very risky bet. They consider their, their uh, local fans as a captive audience that will always be there, no matter the price, no matter how the club is run. They will always be there. Can, we and, just, can I just jump off? There's a point there really quickly that I just, something you said, which really, really matters on this, I think. And you said arms race. Yeah, there's an arms race when it comes to um, uh, the presidential elections of Real Madrid and Barcelona. And... Um, and, and that's the arms race in a different form. There's an arms race amongst Premier League clubs, particularly, and obviously a wider European aspect to it. But, you know, talking about English Premier League clubs is always talked about in terms of arms races. Now, Tim, when it comes to um, that arms race, that culture where it's, well, you know, you want us to buy the best players, don't you, fans? And actually what fans have replied to with this is, no, what we want you to do is to look after the football club properly and to honour its history and its tradition mm. and our relationship with it. And, and now what you're seeing is what happens when you don't and you ignore, as you said, I don't 
it's just those local fans, actually. I think on top of it, I don't think you were saying that, you were talking about Barcelona Real Madrid. On top of that, it's actually what fandom thinks, because there's a report out today that says, surveying, saying 75 to 80% of these Gen Z fans, Gen Z fans, whatever you want, um, they didn't like the idea either. So, Tim, how much of this is driven by external forces in football? And how much of this is, you know, as I've posted in a post today, is it is it also to do with the fact that, yeah, look, you know, football's doing it, but then it's got these comms professionals continuing to encourage this 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 way of behaving where every issue can be dealt with by communications. And it, and actually they forget that part of communications is how you deal with your with, with your with your fans in this case, your stakeholders. Yeah, and, and look, in uh, the, the best PR in the world, um, uh, which which uh, the Super League did not engage. But the best PR people in the world could not have made the Super League into a into a good idea. It was a bad idea, um, uh, and badly badly executed. Um, what what are the forces involved here? Well, to to my mind, there's you know there's there's, there's a couple of play. The first is actually philosophical. You know, uh, you've got an American model, uh, which is very different in terms of the construct of sport and how it's set up and a European model. And those are both very much into the culture of the fans, right? You say to an American fan, you know, the idea that the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Yankees could be relegated, they would look at you with some degree of puzzlement, you know, the idea that that, that could happen. Whereas, on this side of the water, we take that as red. It's part of the, the, whole, the whole, whole point. And, you know, the other side of that coin is that how that affects the balance sheet is that on this side of the world, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, whereas on the other side of the world, it's complete certainty. And in fact, not only that, but the, the something that, you know, Kevin, which you're, you're very much aware of, you know, the, the idea of a a club, a franchise being bought, renamed, taken somewhere else, is absolutely part and parcel of the game. Whereas here, that is regarded as, as heresy. Um, but, you know, as, as Ronan said, it's, this is about a collision of one ideology about ownership and how sport should be governed and put on, and another. Uh, and it's very clear where it ended up. And, and the point you make, actually, it's a really, really good point, that piece of research you mentioned, because I, you know, one of the entertaining things, actually, about last Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday was sort of Agnelli and Perez sort of passing the bonkers baton in terms of who would say the most ridiculous thing next. And, you know, Perez saying, well, 40% of young people don't like football. Um, that's why we're doing this to save football. I mean, I made made the point. If any any business had a sixty percent market share, it would be laughing amongst young people. But the fact is, it's nonsense that forty percent of people don't like football. And that piece of research you mentioned, which is by a very good agency called Ear to the Ground, who actually have a, a product called Fan Intelligence, which can poll thousands and thousands of that. They prove that amongst young young fans, young fans hate the Super League as much as 
these so-called romantics that, that you know, older fans are described as being. They hate it just as much. So the whole thing was built on sand, really. But as I say, it boils down to a very fundamental difference in, in, uh, in philosophy when it comes to sport and how sport is run and owned. And, and you know, I think I can characterise it as values versus valuations. Uh, you know, the Super League was designed to drive up the valuations and the balance sheets of those elite clubs. And that was all it was designed to. And the fact it was being run by two, the, you know, the, the two architects were guys whose, whose clubs are in a complete mess financially. There's no coincidence there. And, and, and interestingly enough, actually, one of the things that happens as a result of this now is that the position of the European clubs versus the big six Premier League clubs gets worse. The Premier League clubs financially are going to be much stronger than their European counterparts, uh, particularly as it's now, it's just come out that you know, the rumour is that the Premier League have signed again with Sky and BT and Amazon for the same money. And, you know, less, and that is an astonishing result. You know, flat is the new up. In, now, no one in Europe is going to get that. You know, the, the, the TV situation in France, in Germany, in Spain, and Italy is very, very... So that's kind of interesting, you know, what happens as a result of that. Um, but it's about it's about what, what's next. And, and the, at the end of the day, Kev, to go to the, you know, what, where, where, where this is headed, I hope, is about two things. It's about cost control, because cost control is, you know, if, you're, if your costs are running away with you, you're in, you know, you're in the emergency ward and we're seeing at every level of the game even at the humble level of the mighty shaman you know we have clubs every year spending huge amounts of money on players that they don't have so cost control is one issue and then the other is revenue distribution so how do we how do we more fairly share it if people do want to share it if people want to do keep the pyramid alive. And again, there are people who don't want to do that. You know, I've seen quite sensible people saying there's too many football clubs. And if, if they, you know, if, if some go to the wall at the lower end, so be it. And it's terrible that people are saying that, but there are people genuinely saying that they think that's a cure, you know. Ronan, um, just for, for people listening from, from it, from England, from these islands, um, uh, you know, we all get, very understandably preoccupied with the noise being created over the big six, so-called big six. We should always preface it with so-called big six because not that long ago, it didn't involve some of the clubs that are now regarded as big six. And at least one of them was in the tier three of English football, but seems to have forgotten that. Um, but what was the reaction like? I mean, I've seen some stuff from, I think it was fans of, uh, of, of Milan, um, I think it was them that that, that, that did an open letter because I know act, you know activism. A lot of people might not understand that you know activism does come in very different forms in different countries, and that you might have a much more ultra-driven culture that isn't really about you know it's just about the tifo, it's about the noise at the game, it's about the banners and everything. But actually, there was you know there was a lot of reaction from 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 fans everywhere across Europe, wasn't there? This wasn't this wasn't just you know in our own little bubble. Um, you know, where we had particular things going on. This was going on everywhere, wasn't it? Tell us a little bit about how fans were responding to all of this. 
from from where you were? Yeah, the response has been quite unanimous. And actually, that was one of the things that surprised me because one of the narrative we heard before this was that some leagues would be better off without the big ones. You know, if you're a fan of a mid-table club in in Italy, in France, in Germany, it's always the same winner. Or the same one, two, three winners. Uh, The Premier League, for all its sins, at least have a little bit more diversity. So I think this was... I I thought we would hear more, this response. Yeah? Okay, they can go away. We'll be better off without them. But it didn't go so much into that direction. I mean, we've seen... In England, we've seen Leeds fans protesting. They were not impacted, at least directly. And I think it's down to two facts. One is that the threat was so enormous that everybody understood that... This is, this is the end of football as we know it, if they succeed. And that will have an influence on the whole ecosystem. On the whole ecosystem. And I think there was also a feeling of solidarity. The, the shock for the fans of those clubs was so big that, you know, we, we're part of the same culture, no matter the country. And then there was a feeling of solidarity towards the fans of, of Liverpool, of Atletico, of uh, AC Milan. And I think that that played also a big role in the, in the, in the response. Now, Media and football governing bodies have been focusing a lot on the response in, in England, and that's fair enough. It's been very well coordinated, and 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 the fan organisations of the big six and beyond have managed to do a fantastic lobbying effort, media campaign, and, and a huge credit to them for that. But in uh, in Spain or in Italy, fans have been opposing it. They are they are operating in a much more uh, hostile environment. We know how Perez is powerful in Spain. It's virtually I mean, it's more powerful than some ministers at the. In the, in the current government, it's really hard to lobby uh, the p- politicians. He also has all these, uh, you know, friendly media that are ready to relay uh, his, his words at any time. So for Spanish fans, it's been really difficult to, 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 to work against this and to mobilize. Now they, get, they got to that point, they are, as, uh, in Atletico Madrid, there's a real unanimity between the fan groups to reject the Super League. In, in Real Madrid and Barcelona, there's some associations of minority uh, socios that are trying to, to, to push for, for a referendum on the, uh, on, the, on the reform. In Italy, it's been, it's been a bit different because Italy has suffered enormous consequences of the, of the monetization, capitalization of the game already in the 90s. So there was a bit of a feeling that, you know, we've already lost the game. This battle is already lost. This is just another episode, but in the end, we, we've already lost. I think this is a widely shared feeling, but nevertheless, there's been a strong response from some of, some of the groups. The difficulty in Italy is that the the UEFA fan base is very different from the rest of the country, and there is, to a certain extent, uh, some support in UEFA, and we've seen this on on mostly on social media. But I think the rest of Italian football, the the, the yeah, the rejection is is pretty strong from the fans as well. Hi, I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about Match Day Digital, the world's first football-first digital magazine platform bringing together premium paid content from clubs, Match Day programmes, popular football magazines, newspapers and high-quality fan-produced fanzines. It's quite the list. Uh, Match Day Digital brings football content and supporters together in a single app which allows clubs and other publishers to deliver their content to a much wider audience than they would through their own print or digital sites and apps, all especially relevant, obviously, during this COVID era. You can download the app on Google Play and Apple Store. Go to matchdaydigital.co.uk for more. And if you're a club, drop the fellas over there a line. They're really friendly, and I'm sure they'd love a chat with you about your needs.
So, so look, I mean, the 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 the, the natural sort of next step, and I would ask this wherever I worked, whether it was domestically in in England or Wales or or in all the countries I worked in. Italy was one that I worked in a bit. Um, was always well. Look, if you wanted to know what the response to this would be, you could you could ask. Um, it's very easy to do that. You could even do it in slightly round what you know might call roundabout ways where you don't say would you like a european super league but you can investigate how people think about these things mm -hmm. quite um you know, techniques of polling and stakeholder engagement they're all out there and they're all very fundamental parts of how some people communicate um these days with sort of particularly with 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 people like fans you know these 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 slightly strange customary but, but sort of highly developed stakeholder relationships that fans have. Um, but they don't. And then someone else tells some, you know, the way that I kind of picture it, um, partly because I've seen it happening a bit, but is that someone comes up with an idea and there isn't someone else putting a handbrake on at that moment and going, hang on a minute. What we need to do is we need to go and find out. What they do is they all go, that's a great idea. So here, this is one I chucked at Tim the other week when I did the pod, did the podcast with him. And sorry for anyone who heard that one and is bored shitless with my um with my stories. But you know, I was speaking to one Premier League club not long ago, a chief executive, and he said to me, "Well, we were asked if we could auction off our goalposts, um, and it was during the season, and there was another match a few days later. So of course, I said no. <laughs> um, you know this." It, only, it doesn't take much to work out that if it's not involving the goalposts, if it is something like the Super League or, or say, you know, Project Big Picture, which domestically, frankly, is exactly the same idea reheated because it's just about handing six clubs all the power. The same six clubs, I believe. Um, this is all every single time is what voices are in the room, isn't it? This is every time. And the reason it matters that UEFA, despite me being slightly disparaging perhaps earlier about, um, you know, them having interest in everything, they're a massive organisation, of course they do, I get it. But they do actually invite people in the room very actively. And, and although the Premier League has been doing it much more, and I know the EFL do it a bit over here, you know, and they do have what they term structured dialogue with the national bodies and the fan organisations, it's still not really permeated clubs properly or the game, has it? And it is, it really is, you know, I mean, I hate to be, to be terribly negative, but it's just because it's true that people, I think football is full of people all telling each other that, um, that they're great at what they do, or it's got too many people who spend their time saying, this is, you're great at what you do. You're clearly brilliant because your revenues have gone up and, you know, gone up year on year. Well, yes, the reason for that half the time is because it's a football club. It's not because you've gone out and had to sweat the asset in a way that, you know, a high street retailer does or anyone else does. It's because you're handed money on a plate every year is one of the reasons it, it works the way it does. So I think the humility aspect is important out of this. So are, can we move from the sheer shame that some of these, you know, admittedly some of these people will now feel quite rightly because of what they, their involvement in the Super League, can we move to a position where perhaps they start to have a little humility <laughs> or am I asking the uh, actually yeah. uh, can, tell me Ronan and then I'd like to know Tim because you've said yeah. something you you know there's some great stories you tell about some of the work you've done in the past and I'd like you to kind of relate something because I think people need to hear that when it comes to whether or not fans actually get asked 
about this stuff and whether that permeates the culture. Ronan? I think we've heard a lot of conspiracy theories about what happened in the last few days. You know, it was all part of the plan that eventually it's for Agnelli to, to, to control, to get more control over European football, uh, which is completely bullshit but um the... i'm not sure how shooting yourself in the face yeah um, exactly exactly but that that shows uh, still yeah that shows a really deep misunderstanding of the people that work in football there are a lot of stupid people who end up running major football clubs or leagues or fa's or more and that's a fact you know they, they make terrible terrible decisions and on one side if, if football wants to be an industry they need to apply you know a proper process and to some the people have been trying to launch a super league i'm sure they are a yogurt production company that speaks more to their customers than some of those clubs clubs like like juve or, or real madrid they'll run in a very top-down paternalistic approach you know we've been hearing about progress and globalizing the game and so on but that's not progress that was the standard of running a football club 30 or 40 years ago not not in modern times they don't have a clue about social responsibility, engaging with the stakeholders, engaging with the local communities, impacted parties, and and so on. So um, how did we get there? Probably because they haven't done proper research. You know, we, we have a network in worldwide, maybe 60 countries. Normally, when there's a proper market research done, we hear about it one way or another, or they approach us, or they approach some of our members. All the research has been done around the, around the Super League or the reform of the European club competitions, the ECA research or, or the polls that have been leaked by the Super League promoters, this has seemed to be done in a bubble. We haven't, we, we don't know where this was coming from. So this is, yeah, this is worrying because those people not, are not able to speak to their, what in the end we are, their customers or, or their, their, their stakeholders. And, uh, and they, they work in, uh, yeah, in uh, yeah, again, in a bubble. So when we talk about the next steps, yes, we need more democracy. Yes, we need more balance of power. We need more counter, counter power to the power of the big clubs. That's the role of UFA. That's the role of the FA. It's probably the role of, uh, of the public, uh, of, the, of the governments as well, because we see that football has really big troubles regulating itself. Uh, that's one thing, but there needs to be a change, a cultural change in the football industry. And uh, and uh, the discussion at the moment in England about, about 50 plus one, about sitting at the club's board, this is all very interesting and it comes from a really positive angle. But if there is no... Uh, if there's no major change in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the culture of this industry and the way the clubs are run, you can't implement meaningfully those, those, those solutions. This is, this is the thing, right? Tim, the cultural stuff is what um, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in talking to you and you know, the why why we you, you co-host this one this this podcast series is because um, you've got an understanding of the culture of it in a way that you know not a lot of people have because you get to um, you know you have over over a number of years spoken to a lot of people right in right at the centres of where these decisions are made and you know you you're you from my understanding of speaking with you you've tried you've always tried to say to them look. Um, you know the, the, the example of you know I'm sure you've got more examples than this, but the one that I tell everyone about that you that you talked about again on the podcast was that Man United story. Now, the idea that you go and um, you go to a big club like that and you say, right, what you're going to do is to I'm going to get you to understand the culture of this, not um, just what it's like to stand in the Stratford end. That was that was a, you know that's a sensible move anyway. Is is your money going going? Oh, it's probably sitting in the Stratford end. 
go and spend your spend your match in the Stretford end when the Stretford end really meant something. Um, in, it's still in the early 2000s. Um, but also that bringing in of someone who actually had a deep connection, Ronan, it was someone whose father had refused to go back, couldn't go back to Old Trafford after the Busby babes died in the Munich air disaster. Now that, that people might go, yeah, well, that's a neat bit of, you know, whatever you call it, but that's not really going to change the world. But it is an important thing, isn't it? Because it's bringing a voice in that, you know, and people will be all having these conversations around marketing will be and, and communications will be having, especially corporate level stuff. They'll be talking about companies and organizations and strategy, but they won't get the connection that is there between the fan and the, and the club. And that th is so ridiculous. It's, it's so deep and so meaningful. You can't really put a finger on it and you need to have a bloke up there crying about it to get them to understand, don't you? Yeah. And I, and I, you know, that, that, so that, that was an interesting moment because we'd spent a whole day uh, with a with a client of mine who just become a sponsor of Manchester United, and we got their senior people and the senior people from all their ad agencies and marketing agencies who, with the greatest respect to them, were not hardcore football fans. So we're, we're in um, unknown territory. So what I was trying to do was give them a sense of Manchester United and also the people that they needed to communicate with. And, and I did not know. You know, we you know I worked with the uh, with the club to get a fan in, and we 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 just chose someone at random. This wasn't stage managed. I had no idea what was going to happen. Happened, which was when he started talking about his father not being able to go back to Old Trafford after the Busby Babes were killed and starting to weep. It it was an extraordinary moment, but it did get get across my point, which was you are dealing with something that is akin to a religion here. And that I think is what's really interesting about one of, you know, one of the things about the last few days, I think, is it sort of reminded people how much this matters. And, and don't get me wrong, there are other sports and other things in life that matter just as much. But it, as it happens in a lot of countries, and particularly in European countries where football is king, football matters an awful lot to people, to their lives, and it means a lot to their families and it's what they hand out, will hand down as well. So I think that's really interesting. The other thing that's really interesting for me just now is that what, what surfaced is how important it is that actually you do involve the fans in all sorts of ways. And let's start with, the, let's go back to the Super League, right? So if this was a normal business, right? So let's say Coca-Cola, right, was going to launch something uh, a new a new product or Unilever or any of these guys, they would spend. And Coke had a, an, a, an interesting issue a few years back when they launched New Coke. They got it wrong, but these companies would spend a huge amount of time and effort making sure the product was good and that people liked the product before they launched it. So you've got, and that and that is just that's just how you do research and development and product marketing and product innovations. Basic basic stuff there was a failure here and and one of the i think the good things that are going to come out of this hope good things that come out of this is that this has surfaced how important that stuff is and it's also surfaced that for a lot of these owners and you know particularly in the uk they are going to have to really really work on their fan 
engagement strategies to repair this relationship. So there are a lot of people, I'm not sure yet, but you know, there are people saying, look, this is broken. This is, this is incapable of working and it's just going to be until they find a buyer walk away, it's not going to work. You know, I have to say the biggest loser for me in all this is Fenway Sports Group and John Henry in particular, who, look, they, they were on a yellow in football parlance. They're now on a red, it looks to me. It's now at glazer levels, um, the antipathy. Um, but in order to have viable businesses going forward, and to mend these relationships and, and sort of the future of these football clubs after this. So this is why I think it's a turning point is it's no good saying, well, we hope the fans are going to be on side. You've got to make sure they're on side. If you're going to do something big, you have to make sure of it. Um, uh, and even if they don't have voting power, they've shown in the last few days that they can change things. Fans can change things. Well, can I just chuck something in there again that I've read this afternoon? Um, and admittedly, I haven't had time to read the story in full, but it was tweeted by Ollie, uh, Ollie Winton, who's someone who's been involved on and off for a long time at the Man United Supporters Trust and is, is quite well connected. Um, and he, he tweeted a story about um, the fact that the chairman of Man United, I think it's Joel Glazer, isn't it, isn't going to turn up to the emergency forum. So this would be, I'm assuming this would be the fans' parliament that they have, which they could have spoken with about the Super League plans had they wished to. Um, and which all the other clubs, bar Spurs, who actually have a board-to-board relationship with their supporters, trust, so it's even closer. Um, and um, and he's not turning up to this meeting. And I'm and I'm looking at it and going, well, hang on a minute. You have you talk about reds and yellows. You know they're on. If it's possible to be banned for five games, you know they've already served their ban. They got back. They've had a chance. They're now on another red. And he's still not turning up to this meeting. And my, th- I'm thinking to myself. You've got a real chance here. So, Ronan, look, I mean, is, is it, are we destined, you know, not to be in that position where we should be, where we're actually clubs, when they introduce, when they start speaking to someone like Tim, they actually say, by the way, we're going to get a fan in the room, randomly chosen. They insist that that's part of their process and they don't just rely on the luck of having somebody who wants to do that. You know, or are we forever burdened with this, what what some call and I certainly do oppositionalism where we're actually yeah I yeah some fans are always going to be a bit oppositional some fans like that because that's just some people and football gives them a way to express that you know that's just part of life but actually in my experience most fans don't want to be like that but are are, are the way that too many owners and too many you know senior administrators who set the trends and and administrators in the leagues and the governing bodies as well are they just sort of, are we stuck in this groove, you know, or are we going to be talking about this again in another five years, another five years time because it hasn't changed? To come up with, with, with new models, new, new, um, yeah, new governance models, new economic models. And uh, what we've seen through this crisis, especially for the Spanish and the, and the Italian clubs, it, it, it's clubs that are not profitable. They have huge debts. And, and, and the COVID-19 has only increased this, uh, this trend. And what we've seen, I think, is clubs that are trying to, instead of rethinking their model, which is what a normal business would do, you know, try to do things differently, become profitable, 
uh, they're just looking for ways to sustain this model a little longer. And it's, just, it, it's not going to work. If they don't crash now, they will crash in three years. They will crash in five years. So it's, first of all, they need to put back the fence in, 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 in the core of the, of the discussion. And the example of Liverpool is interesting because that's a, that's a club that has used the identity, the culture, the working class culture of the fans as part of their marketing strategy and all the research on what's, what is called by sociologists, the long distance fans, the distance fans shows that they identify with a club because they want to be part somehow of this community or they feel a connection to this community. So if you antagonize that community on one hand, you can't sell your product on the other side of the globe on the other. So even if we are in a you know, for-profit endeavor, they need the home fans and we, they need the home fans to create the product. And we've seen this um, throughout the COVID crisis with empty stadiums and, 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 and dropping uh, TV rates. Now, in terms of response, the problem is that, okay, we need, to, we need, we need a change in the governance. We need a change in the, the culture of the football industry. And this is not going to happen overnight. So we need to be careful about easy solution to this. Uh, this is not going to be a quick process. This is going to take some time to, 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 to get a new culture going. Uh, we need to keep UFA, the FAs and the clubs uh, responsible for what happened because they all have a responsibility in this and that they finally play their role, especially the FAs and, the, and UFA as a, as a counterbalance for the power of the big clubs. Now, in terms of immediate response, we have a major financial economical crisis in European football coming uh, in front of us. So the number one priority is to protect the clubs. And I think we have an advantage in, in France, for example. If my club, if Senant, uh collapses tomorrow, if we file for bankruptcy, it's not the end of the world. You know, we go back to amateur level, we go back to the third, fourth, fifth division, depending on how much money there is left, and how much money there is left. And it's fine, the story continues. It's going to be painful. People will lose their job, but the club, the institution, the colors, the, 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 the history is still there. Now there's a certain number of countries like England where a club can disappear overnight. And I think the immediate response we need to, to consider to think about is how do we protect our clubs and the communities attached to it from the crisis, the, the, the financial and economic, economic crisis in the, in the making. And that's when governments and, 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 and for the EU, the, the the uh, European institutions need to step in and, 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 and start thinking about a model, like the cultural model, the, the, the specific status of culture in the EU, where, where clubs are protected from, from vultures, uh, investors that are trying to, to rip them off. We have a fantastic example in France with Bordeaux, with the King Street Investment Fund, which literally dropped the club from one day to another with a statement saying, sorry, we're not interested in investing in the club anymore. We're not paying anything. This, this is over, the club goes into liquidation. And now they're ready to invest into Inter Milan. So this is exactly the sort of, of irresponsible investors we need to be protected from. So in the end, um, I mean, and I don't, I don't you know, the, 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 the size of it is all different. I'd suggest that the problems are all of scale rather than of difference in that, um, and it might surprise people to know this. I mean, you know, Halifax was a club I had a little bit of involvement in when they went kaput in the, uh, I think it was, was it about 2009 to 2008? Um, yeah, advising the Supporters Trust at the time. And they were trying to work out whether to launch a rescue bid. And I was advising the chair there. Um, uh, and um, every single situation I saw, whether it was right down at the bottom 
or whether it was working with Man United fans when the Glazers took over and their concerns around that. Um, it was always a matter of scale for me. The culture was all very similar. And that was the culture amongst fans and the tendency towards, I think, increasing levels of solidarity between different organisations, but certainly within the fan base when things went wrong, they all clubbed together and worked hard with the community. Um, but also, I think with corporate, corporately, I think the trouble is, is that clubs, um, they get taken over very often. A lot of clubs get will get run by people who have been successful once or twice, maybe. Maybe they've been successful a lot. Um, but a certain, quite often a certain type of person who believes they don't need uh, advice, that they can make a fist of this, this is fine, this is something they deal with all the time, or that believe that as long as they've got the correct um, financial strategy that everything will be fine because then they start acting like a corporate monolith and they don't do things that represent the type of business that football is. So actually when you're talking about the changes that are needed, whether they are the cultural ones or the, the ones around governance and particularly the cultural ones are the ones that I'm interested in. Um, and also in the terms of the, the industries that touch football or, or overlap with football in marketing and communications, um, they're all, it, you know, the, the changes are all, that are all required are all very similar. It's not like this is some huge different order of problem. The scale is different, but all the dynamics are, are the same. So this could be, we could see something develop, but it's presumably there's going to be a lot of resistance when it comes to people's interests, isn't there, uh, Tim? Yeah, I mean, anybody who heard um, Jonathan Barnett, the football agent, being interviewed on the Today programme last week by Rob Bonnet will have a pretty clear idea of where he's at. That was right in the eye of the storm of Super League. Um, but that's one of the biggest issues. You know, the costs are out of control. Um, we have to bring it down. And um, uh, Jonathan would vehemently disagree with me, but I actually think the players would be okay with that. They're earning untold riches. If they earned 50%, 30% of what they earn now, they would still be rich beyond people's wildest dreams. Um, and, and that is a massive issue facing football. Uh, uh, there, there are many, but you know this arms race that's going on it's just unsustainable, as, uh, along with how the clubs are run. You know, I mean, there's this, this latest thing is, you know, this 83 million quid because of, of uh, uh, Norwich and um, Watford being promoted back to the Premier League. Straight back, there's 83 million quid going. So the championship clubs want it. Well, they're spending, you know, one of them last, just the last reported account, were spending 216% of their turnover on wages. So what's the point, actually, of handing that 83 million to Because it'll be gone in a heartbeat, you know. Um, and let's not forget the kind of sums of money that we're talking about that clubs are going into liquidation for. You know, it's generally speaking not that much money further further down the pyramid. So, you know, the the... the the problems are really, really clear, actually. And as Ronan says, it's not going to be overnight that they're going to get solved. But if we want, if we want football to be sustainable, we're going to have to work on very quickly uh, these issues. And, and they're at every level, as you say, 
Kev, you know, it's the, the, the issues are the same. It's just a question of scale. Right, and Ronan, I'll leave you with the last word that this, this in the end, um, if, if, uh, if a club goes bust, just setting aside the particular um, uh, way in which that club is regulated in terms of France or Italy or, you know, or, or what have you, whether they're permitted to restart at tier five or whether they have to fight hard and go through a process which is a lot less opaque these days, but is nonetheless still a bit of a bureaucratic process like they do in England. Um, if clubs go bust, if clubs suffer, in the end, perhaps, and this is what the Super League has done and the collapse of it and the mess around it, is it's us that end up clearing up the mess. It's the fans that do, you know, and while that never used to mean anything to a lot of people, I think, and it really does mean that that we are the ones that are left behind. We're the ones left standing. When all of you, when King Street investments have gone, it's the Bordeaux fans that are left to resurrect the club, isn't it? And that's what that's why you need to be, as an organisation and as organised fans and fans in general, that's why you need to be part of the decision-making process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, a lot, a lot of people have discovered the beauty of collective action. And I, I, I mean... You, it's hard to tell at the moment what will be the long-term consequences of it, but once you once you've touched this, it's it's hard to go back, yeah, to being a, to being a sole customer. So I think I think we will see a new generation of activists in a number of European countries, starting with England, and 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 that's 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 very exciting, with um, maybe different a different approach, maybe with different demands, you know. <laughs> The promoters of the Super League have talked about the new generation. Well, the new generation was in the street around Chelsea. Did you see the so age? Like, so like you know, you could see they were all 20-year-olds. Yeah. 25-year-olds, you know. Yeah. Um, it was really that was really interesting. I, I Perez, there must have been another moment where Perez was just, I mean, they probably doesn't do that, but you know, um, he, he was he would have had so many in the last 10 days. <laughs> so they, I think I think my, the favorite thing that he said was he said. At the start of that, um, talking about the friendly media, Ronan, he, he always goes on that same show that always gives. And he said, maybe the problem was that we didn't explain it well enough. And I thought, well, actually, the problem is you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the future is in a way bright for fan activism. At least there's there's hope, and 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 we have to, to in many ways. This this is confirming. What, what fan groups have been saying for years, you know, that, that we're not going anywhere, that we need to put, a, to put an end to this, to this insane, unsustainable model. So, yes, we see a lot of our um, uh, hypothesis confirmed in many ways. Now, we need to remain the critical friends of football. I think this is the model we need to look, to, to look into. We can be part of the clubs. We can own the clubs in some, some contexts, some countries. But we need to remain the critical friends. The problem of football is the absence of check and balance, the absence of counterpowers. So we have a model that is working in other industries, which is the union model, and that's where fans need to. Needs, that's what fans need to look into. Meaning structured dialogue, meaning com compulsory consultation on, on certain number of topics, and uh, and a statute that is, that is recognized all the way through the pyramid. And then we can play our role of, uh, of, of, of counterbalance for the power of the big clubs. I'll tell you, I'll tell you an interesting story. So um, a friend of mine who is uh, global chief marketing officer for a major corporation who spent a lot of money on football uh, and, you know, Europe is 
a very important part of their business. Um, I had a fascinating chat with him the other night and he said two really interesting things to me. He said, first is, uh, and, and a lot of their communications around their sponsorships are about fans and understanding fans. He said, we completely need to change everything now. What we had before looks, it's just been, everything's different after this. So we need to rethink how we see the fan. And the second thing is, if he has his way, and it will take, you know, be interesting what comes out of it, but they actually, as a major sponsor, want now to, he wants to, for them to get behind change happening in football. You know, mm -hmm. wow. Um, that's going to be really, really interesting. I, I, I suspect that he is not the only guy uh, feeling that around the world. There'll be a lot of... Uh, um, CMOs, a lot of senior people uh, at football sponsors, at TV stations, thinking the same thing. And, you know, um, they will, what they do in the next few months, uh, a year or so is going to be fascinating because they can play a major role in affecting change.